We'll be uh, reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, <clears throat> verses 12 through 18. 2 Corinthians 3, 12 to 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not, might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Buenos dias. Be ready for a full sermon in Spanish today. Yes. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Maybe one day. Maybe one day. 2025 might sound uh, doable, right? Uh, it's a privilege to be here with you, sharing God's word today. My name is Manfred Caroli, and I am one of the pastors here at Calvary. And before we start, I want to remind you that um, we're having a farewell lunch for Carolyn Whitman and her family, uh, followed by this service. So um, we want to invite you to come and join us and give them a word of encouragement as they transition um, in the next weeks um, uh, to, out of the state to another place. Uh, we're going to miss Lee deeply, and we love them. So it's a good opportunity to come, uh, also hang out, um, and enjoy a really good meal, too. So we want to see you there. Uh, also, if you're new this morning, uh, we're currently on a sermon series exploring the second letter. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and this morning we'll be exploring um, the remaining verses of chapter 3. And uh, some of you ask, um, but today, unfortunately, I don't have any illustrations about goats. I don't have any wisdom from the Middle East. But... We're going to try something different today, all right? And you're going to help me, and you have to help me. <laughs> so I want you to do your best uh, to picture in your minds. Uh, I don't know if you do this by closing your eyes or I don't know. But I want you to do your best to picture a, the face of a uh, eight-and-a-half, nine-year-old, roughly, uh, child in a country or a community not so far from here whose life circumstances are so raw and extreme and dark that he doesn't have the luxury of having or experiencing any hope. The future that he sees in front of him is everything but right, and he suspects that destruction and casualties will surround his life permanently. 
So instead of playing with toys and with his friends and enjoying the gift of innocence, he is forced into mature quickly so that he can protect and care for his family. He's locked in a dark, despairing, and hopeless prison with no hope at all. So if you have that image in your mind, um, I want you to please hold on to it. And now allow me to bring you into uh, this picture that I'm trying to describe. And let's say that you are sent specifically to meet this child and to share with him the reason of the hope that you have in Christ. What would you tell him? What would be so compelling to the child to hear from you that will give him real hope? Something, something so compelling that, will hold, that he will hold on to that and that it will provide him at the same time a real sense of hope for his life and for his future, a future in which he's free, loved, and cared for. If you have that image, I want you to please hold on to it. This can be the reality of a child right now, can be the reality of, you know, a man, a woman, somewhere, maybe here this morning too, lacking hope. Now, allow me to provide some context before we get into our text this morning. And in verses 7 to 11, we learned from Pastor Eric last week how Paul compared the inferior glory of the old covenant against the surprising, the surprising glory of the new covenant. And Paul explained the implications of the temporary glory of the old covenant in contrast with the permanent and exceeding glory of the ministry of the Spirit. Paul then proceeds to expand his teaching from Exodus 32, 33, 34, by explaining the results of those living under the new covenant and those that intend to follow the Mosaic law. He contrasts what he explained in the previous section by letting the Corinthians know how he looked in his life and how he experienced the hope he had in Christ as well. So this morning we hope, we will explore why the hope of the gospel is so compelling. And we want, we're going to do that by describing the implications of this hope, by considering also what kind of hope you and I receive in Christ, what hope do we believe in, and why our hope in Christ is worth to be shared with the world. So if you don't mind, would you please join me for a minute in prayer. Thank you. Father, thank you for your presence among us this morning. Thank you for the privilege we have to be called your children, Lord. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit. Thank you for your word and Christ's revelation in it, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for... Uh, the way that I know you're going to speak to us, Lord, to each one of us, Lord. I pray, Lord, and I ask that we all will be challenged, Lord, will be encouraged too. And I pray for our missionaries. I pray for ministers and pastors that right now are proclaiming the truth of the gospel in the different contexts where you have them rooted, Lord. Think about them, Lord. We thank you that you are moving, that you're working that you're restoring, that you're healing, that you are creating, Lord. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you will take away any um, distractions and anything that will blind us to see what you have prepared for us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. The first observation I want to make this morning is that 
Our hope in Christ is sufficient and complete. Paul says in verse 12 that the hope he has received through the glorious revelation of the new covenant is so reliable that impacted his life in such a way that he had the boldness and the courage to proclaim the gospel with no reservation. But why boldness? Um, this boldness was needed in response to the opposition and teachings of the self-proclaimed apostles in Corinth. And as a minister of the and as a ministry of the ministry, as a minister of the ministry of the Spirit, he received the hope through Christ and the gospel, as opposed to the super apostles who didn't share this kind of hope. Paul's message was not of human construct or wisdom. His message was the word of God is spoken. And he was under obligation to respond and share the gospel of Christ. The message of the gospel was being was complete and sufficient in Christ already. And that gave him the confidence to speak it in the open. This message was not to be kept hidden. It was so great, worth being proclaimed, that it compelled his carrier to deliver it to as many people as possible. The hope he received from the gospel message was complete, was sufficient, and rooted in the work of the Spirit in his life. Paul's freedom and overflowing confidence led him to respond to the teaching of the super apostles and the circumstances he was facing demanded a reason for the hope that he had in Christ. Because of the, of the message of the ministry of the Spirit over the ministry of the letter has a more extraordinary, exploring glory. And because it brings life and not death, those who are called to live and minister under it will have the courage to proclaim it without hiding without, behind a veil. Paul's permanent hope was to be experienced and was to be lived and was to be given freely. Paul had a fearless hope because his confidence was to stay not in him, but through the work of the Spirit in his own life that was able to do more abundantly than all that he asked or thought according to the Spirit and the power of the Spirit in him. So instead of hiding and, or giving in to pressure he could have experienced due to the challenges he had and the church were facing too, Paul decided to speak out by elevating the radiant truth of the gospel message even higher to the place that rightfully belonged. However, this, this hope contrasts with the uncertainty and limitations experienced by those following and imposing a fading glory of the old on others. But the glorious hope and the promise of the new covenant called Paul to be bold and courageous. There was nothing to be ashamed of when Christ is your living letter of recommendation. Paul being, was being led in a triumphal procession through the work of the Spirit, the Spirit is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere he went, and the hope of Christ gave him the freedom and the confidence to persevere. As far as the message of the gospel, Paul told the Corinthians in his first letter that the most important message he had received was the one, the one that he preached to them in the first place. That Christ died, that Christ was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And such a message of hope penetrated his life so deeply that it was worth being preached and made known but also a false sense of hope can make people live and respond in fear and shame to the demands of their context. Sometimes the external pressures are too hard that in our desire to conceal two different realities that cannot coexist, we keep ourselves quiet, ashamed, or afraid. Or even worse, we find ourselves presenting a deluded version of the gospel so that we are not rejected. A false sense of hope can be based in our, on our performance also, and external achievements to obtain it. 
making us believe that we can secure it somehow. <laughs> Still, that kind of hope won't last because it's something that our imperfect efforts and abilities cannot sustain. False hope can make people align themselves with realities contrary to the truth of the gospel, trying to conceal the new with the old just to be loved and accepted. Jesus' message was so radical because he came to inaugurate something completely new that would challenge and break the patterns of the old and the culture. He came to do and fulfill what couldn't be fitted into all forms and traditions. His message, his miracles, his authority weren't like any, what anyone had seen before. And Paul is exhibiting the same boldness that characterized Jesus, the apostles, and the early church. The scripture tells us that Jesus stood with authority and boldness no one has seen before. Jesus didn't come to make the old things better or to improve on things that were already falling apart. He came to restore and make things new. He came to make all things new and to usher in the rule of God, something new to everyone. He thought that no, to his disciples that no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into all white skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled. And the skins are destroyed, but the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. The bright and glorious message of the gospel that Paul preached to his audience in Corinth probably didn't sound new, sophisticated, relevant, or hopeful enough. It was probably too simple or too glamorous, like, or not too glamorous like his messenger. A messenger that experienced poverty, too many sufferings and hardships, and whose external appearance was not probably trustworthy. You might recall that in the first letter to the Corinthians, Paul said that he didn't come across as them as wise and persuasive, but it was the message and the spirit in him that was relevant. Paul was a living proof of the impact of the gospel in his life. He was a testimonial, a testimony and a letter of recommendation of that hope. He was not just given information about the gospel. He was a proof, a testimony of the power of the gospel in his own life. He connected the message proclamation with his own life, saying, this is how the power and the impact of that message, of the message of the gospel, looks in my own life. He was okay throwing himself in the picture, and that made his message even more relevant. To his audience, the message was probably too simple, not having to require a ritual or impossible task to be obtained or completed. It just required the person to believe and trust that Christ would do what they weren't able to do, and that is saving themselves. Paul's hope described here, the one that he received and experienced through the gospel, gave him such an assurance and boldness that caused an inward transformation in his life so profound that he no longer lived and saw the world around him and his people in the same way because he profoundly experienced the hope and the love of Christ in his life. Look at what he says in chapter 516, and we're going to get there in a few weeks. In 516, he says that from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. And if you think about it, that is powerful. Paul didn't have to scream or yell to make his point across. Instead, he brought to the church with such an authority that it was grounded in the hope and the love and compassion that only Christ can give. This is the same hope, the same love and compassion that compelled him to address the Corinthians and saints in his letter introduction. And maybe you might be wondering, saints, but listen, I don't call my kids saints. 
I mean, I want to, but it's such a strong and loaded and beautiful word. But is this the same church where all those different crises were taking place? Where they have problems with moral sin in the church, issues with their spiritual gifts, problems with leadership in the Lord's Supper? And this is how Paul writes to the church? This was, era peor que una telenovela. I don't know if you know that word. This church had more drama than the Queen of the South, a Latino soap opera that I know some of you are watching to learn Spanish instead of using Duolingo. So I know. So, and I will say this. If you have complaints about our church, that you might. Uh, you might read First Corinthians. And then, you know, we, we can just chat about it. Um, we know that we are far from perfect, and you already know that, so we don't want to hide it, okay? But let me tell you that, and I know Pastor Gerald is not here right now, so it's good. Um, that, uh, but let me tell you this. Um, we're committed to the Lord. We're committed to you, and we love you deeply. Paul saw the believers for who they were already in eternity, saints. <laughs> He could see past the evident, the external, because his eyes were already set in the invisible, in the eternal. And in the present, in the evident, in the visible, he just chose to love them. How powerful is that? And yet difficult unless the Spirit is working in our lives. In 4.18, he says that we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And that is the perspective that he had in life. This hope is dynamic and sufficient, is secure, a place obtained in and through Christ from beginning to the end, in which Paul and the believers in Corinth were the only, only recipients of that hope in his glory. They were the vessel that will display and point toward the glory of Jesus, and that's why he spoke with boldness, because his hope was complete and it was sufficient, and it was not about him. He understood well who God was and what he could do, and Paul just made himself available. This morning we're being reminded that we receive hope and we have hope that is complete and sufficient. And all here who have put our trust in Christ are ministers of that hope. Since our message contradicts the world's message, we should expect opposition and rejection. That's normal. That's okay. We should expect it. Our message will sound outdated, crazy, simplistic, and irrelevant by the world's standards or maybe too glorious or too good to be true. But not only pastors and ministers and missionaries are called to proclaim it, but any believer here is under an obligation to speak it out loud, boldly, and with clarity into whatever spaces the Lord is calling you to. If it's okay, if it sounds demanding or dazzling, we know our hope brings, the, brings life and freedom, and we must tell the world outside these walls that there is hope in the name of Jesus. Each one of us receive at least one gift from the Spirit, at least one. So let me encourage you to use it to proclaim the good news of the gospel. Don't try to be someone that you're not. We're also reminded that our assurance and confidence comes from God alone. We have not only see his glory, but we carried it in jars of clay. That is the hope that gives us great boldness and confidence that it comes from God and not from us. There is a word of encouragement, too, that because Christ has already accomplished the victory and the redemptive plan has been fulfilled in him, we have nothing to fear or to be ashamed of. Our job is not to convince or to convert people. Our job is to point people to the hope of Christ and let the Holy Spirit 
to do his job, which is convince them of sin, justice, and judgment. The Spirit is the one who's doing the heavy lifting. We just have to show up. Perhaps some of you are here this morning who haven't put your trust in Christ or your salvation yet. Maybe you're lacking hope and your expectations about the future are uncertain and cloudy. But let me tell you that there is power in the name of Jesus. He's able to restore your life and make it anew. And he wants to give you a future and solidly grounded hope. Perhaps you're trusting more what you can do, who you are, what you can bring, the things that you have accomplished to sustain your hope. But that is not going to carry you very long because it's conditioned to circumstances you can't control. And that kind of certainty that either find the fact that you can fully control what's happening outside. No matter how prepared you are, the Lord will use life and unexpected turns to prove you wrong. He will do it out of his love and compassion for you until you confess him as Lord, until you allow him to guide and rule your life. For those of you this morning here, whether you're watching it through the live stream or you're here this morning, I want to consider you to consider Jesus, the good shepherd, and the good news of the gospel. His message is complete, it's sufficient, it's reliable. If this is you this morning, I want to invite you right now just to take a few seconds, a moment, right where you are, and I want to invite you to consider Christ to become your hope, to become the Lord of your life. And while you do that, I want to invite the rest of us just to take a moment of um, silent prayer for those that are considering the good news of the gospel this morning. It might be here in this church. It might be in another country. It might be in a different church. Maybe people that you know. Maybe you want to pray for them. So why don't we all pray for a few seconds while everyone else who is considering Christ prays as well. Let's do that. Father, we think about all of those that are, whether are here or in a different place, right now considering the truth of the gospel in their lives. I pray that the veil that is covering their minds and hearts will be removed because you have the power to save and restore. We are a living proof of that, that you can transform and redeem and create life We trust you, Spirit. Amen. Second observation I want to make this morning is that our hope is unveiled, it's permanent, and it's secured. In verses 13 to 15 now, Paul now explains the limitations of the old covenant under Moses' leadership and how the glory of that covenant was fading. It was coming to an end. He recalls the events of Exodus 34 again, where Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, Sinai with the law in his hands, and his face is shining bright. And all this situation called a lot of drama and people were afraid. Um, it's interesting that the entire law experience caused everyone to be afraid. However, others experience and refer to the law differently in the biblical narrative. The psalmist described the law as perfect, right, pure, clean, true, and righteous. It was meant to bring joy and excitement and hope. Paul himself says in Romans that the law is holy, righteous, and good, and it keeps us conscious of our sin. And in Galatians, he says that the law was a guardian, a guide, until Christ came that we might justify by faith. But somehow in Israel, it just had a different effect or response. 
In Paul's life had a different contrast due to the life-giving and transforming presence of the Spirit, who has the power to recreate and breathe life and change people's sinful, righteous, and condemned disposition before the Lord. Something that the old covenant under Moses' leadership was unable to accomplish. The beauty and the end of this glorious covenant was veiled to the sinful condition of people's hearts. The law was not the problem. People were the issue and it's still the issue to this very day. The glory of God, the glory of the old covenant was and will continue pointing through the narrative of the Old Testament to the person of Christ, the promised Messiah. He was able to do what the old covenant couldn't do. That's why the ministry of the Spirit gives the person the security, the freedom, and the ability to come face to face before the glory of God, before his creator, without being destroyed. It gives the believer the gift of sharing the same space to relate with God without being consumed. But for Moses' ministry, it was different. He had to wear a veil as a symbol, as a reminder of Israel's sinful lifestyle. Otherwise, they would have been consumed and they would have been killed. This is what Paul calls the ministry of the dead in condemnation in verses 7 and 9. Yes, it was glorious, but ultimately led to death because it was fading away, desperately pointing to Christ. The veil symbolized to the Israelites that they were unable by their means to keep up with the requirements of the law, a reminder of the separation that they had before God, a lack of access to his person, and the absence of freedom to the sinful practice that condemned them and kept them away from his presence too. Because that's what sin does. It just leaves the person and keeps them in a dark room, locked away and separated and isolated from God in his presence. The glory they've experienced was concealed or partially hidden. And it looks like the purpose of Paul mention of the veil and the end of passing of the glory of this covenant had eschatological implications in God's redemptive plan for humanity. The glory of the old covenant displayed on Moses' face was not permanent. It only foreshadowed a foretaste of the exceeding an eternal hope of the glory that God's people will enjoy and taste as they will behold God face to face and his glory will be fulfilled through his son, Jesus Christ, in the revelation of the scripture. But Israel lacked understanding of the glory to come. Their hope was veiled and their minds were also blinded to see that the old covenant's glory was pointing to Christ. The veil was not longer literal but spiritual now. Paul says in verse 14 that their understanding was hardened until this day. Their hearts remain rebellious and in darkness, unable to see and comprehend that the revelation of Jesus and the scripture is real. That's it. That was the reality then and to this very day. And to anyone who still doesn't have an abiding faith in Jesus, all who haven't seen his glory and still looking at him through a dark, stained, and polluted thing, thick glass. Paul says that every time and no matter how many times they read the Old Testament, they fail to see the glory of Jesus revealed in the scripture. They cannot recognize the law was pointing to Christ. They seem to hold that idea that somehow they possessed some sort of a special knowledge or revelation to understand the encoding signs of the Old Testament regarding the coming of the promise of the Messiah. They thought they could determine and interpret the mysterious future arrival of their expected and promised Savior. But how would you do that when they were blinded? How can they be the solution when they were the problem? Despite their claims and the many signs in front of them pointing to Jesus, they rejected him. The Apostle Paul says in, in, in his gospel that Jesus Christ came to his own people and they didn't receive him, recognize him, or acknowledge him. Paul establishes that connection that the same problem Moses faced is the same problem he's facing in current and we face today. 
people are wearing a veil still. And they reject the revelation in Christ in the scripture. They cannot see that all their efforts to try to live a righteous life by the human efforts will lead to death, condemnation, and absolute empty, dark, and endless void. So no matter what we do, if we wear a veil, we'll always have the taste of futility and loss with us. By proving the legitimacy of his ministry, Paul wants to point out that the issue is not with the gospel itself, as the law was not the problem either. As a former Pharisee rejected and regarded by his people with a list of credentials, his credentials, Paul describes this issue with such authority because he also had a veil over his heart that kept him in the dark until he encountered Jesus and his veil was finally removed. After all those years of reading, studying, and memorizing scripture, he could only witness and understand and experience the hope of Jesus and his glory after that encounter with Christ. Jesus is the changing factor. He is the only one that can unveil the darkness covering the hearts of unbelievers, making a way where there is no way. He only creates and secures an enduring hope in our present and our future. But he is also the only one who can remove the veil, and he did that at Calvary once and for all. The logic pool might be using is that of contrast here, or comparing. You're in or you're out. You live under the old covenant or you're part of the, or the glory of the new one. You hope it's veil or it's not. Are you born again or you're not? Christ was, still is, and will be the one who makes the difference. This is what Nicodemus, you remember in John chapter 3, the religious leader struggled with. It was difficult for him to understand the ministry of the Spirit and the passive role that the person plays in the being born again process where God does the work through the Spirit, takes the veil away, the person believes the gospel and trusts in Christ for salvation, and the healing and the restoration begins. But the only request for this person is to believe, <laughs> which is the most difficult thing to do, unless the Spirit is opening up their mind and heart. In this section, Paul is pouring out his shepherding heart for the Corinthians, and he uses Moses and the events of Exodus 34 as an illustration by describing the more profound implications of the veil in people's minds and hearts. Still, his primary uh, concern is the, are the believers in current and not necessarily attacking Judaism. Amigos, the hope we receive is unveiled, secured, and permanent in the person of Jesus Christ. Our veil has been removed, and we can see the glory of this person revealed in the scripture now. Jesus unlocked the mystery of his revelation so that we can contemplate his glory face to face. He tore down the veil once and forever. There is no separation between us and God's presence. Now and always, we're always going to have access before the presence of the Lord. However, the problem for believers then and today is that there is a veil of insecurity, lies, blindness, fear, wanting to blind and distortion the work of Christ in us by making us believe that we need to create a set of self-imposed moral rules to walk with the Lord. Since we all tend to control our lives, we might find ourselves trying to control our experience with the Lord too. So we create those rules to protect ourselves, and we also impose them on ourselves and others, of course. Instead of submitting to God's will and the work of the Spirit so that we can enjoy God's love and the life he offers, we create and interpret and bend towards those rules Believing that by doing and following those rules, we can secure our hope and that we will please God in the process. The problem, again, with all these self-created rules is that we're attempting to hide and protect the cracks and brokenness in our lives. 
we try to throw away it and hide the clay, which is the primary uh, material the potter needs to create. We do this that we don't need to present ourselves before others for who we truly are. A work in process, being shaped and crafted in the potter's hand is still fragile and vulnerable and insufficient, unable to claim anything as ours. We are not the masterpiece yet. We're in the process of becoming. We need to remind ourselves that and give ourselves grace and give grace to others too. The clay doesn't question or ask the porter, what are you doing? Instead, the porter has the right to decide what he does with the clay. Paul reminds us in Ephesians that we are the Lord's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And listen, we can do everything perfectly and patch and cover every crack in our lives. Then when we do that, we attempt to cover the glory of the hope we have in Christ that shines through those cracks and wants to be on display. We also forget that the hope we receive is already perfect, complete, and sufficient. We are communicating in a way that maybe we don't fully believe that Christ and the gospel are enough for us. Instead, that we're perfectly capable of taking care of ourselves. But if that would have been true, if that would have been the case, what are we doing here this morning? Let me ask you this. Is Christ sufficient for you today? Do you believe that the resurrection is complete? Something just to think and reflect on. The second aspect we don't realize is that by all these self-imposed rules, we're not only imposing a veil attempting to cover God's glory, but we blind and prevent others from seeing the glory of God in us and through our own cracks. Even if we keep up with the list of rules, which by the way, is going to be exhausting, <laughs> something else is going to take place. We'll become proud of how good we are. And we would admit it at first, but we will try to hide it with a pious attitude that eventually will manifest externally for what it truly is. Not good at all, but sinful pride. We can begin to see and treat others with a sense of superiority and self-righteousness. We can become intolerant. We start talking and criticizing those who cannot keep up with us and are so imposed rules and expectations. We become fanatics. We become legalistic Christians. We become like Pharisees. Morally religious outside, but lost and without a real sense of hope inside. And we're not going to hurt only ourselves, but those around us. Those self-imposed rules will blind us from enjoying the glory and the freedom in Christ. The hope, however, for us believers and unbelievers alike, it's only found in Christ from beginning to the end. And let me ask you this. What things have you done recently or in the past in response to guilt or needing to feel approved or feeling that you don't deserve God's love? The gospel is good news for everyone, Muslims and Jews and the religious person alike. It is also good news for those who are raised in a Christian home who grew up only seeing legalistic groups and traditions instead of seeing and experiencing the love and the grace and the love of Christ. And that's, that's a good word for me as a, as, a, as a parent this morning, something that I've been thinking to. Only through Christ we'll be able to see this world and those in it with perspective. Only through Christ Jesus you can see past deception, the lies you believe, and get to know the truth because the truth is going to set you free. If the person we're contemplating is Christ, we will end up reflecting him with our lives. 
But this is not an overnight process, remember? We need to be gracious with us and with others. And finally, our hope brings freedom and transformation through the work of the Spirit. In the last verses, Paul draws his conclusion thoughts in this this section and explains his experience and the experience of those who put the trust in Christ as Savior and as Lord. He connects what he said before in verse 16 with Moses' own experience described in Exodus 34, 34, where he says that whenever Moses went in before the presence of the Lord to speak with him, he will remove the veil until he came out. I think first he's saying that the same experience and relationship Moses had when he was before the Lord, it is possible now by the presence of the Spirit in the believer's life, and that the same confidence and freedom Moses had to present himself before the Lord without wearing a veil is the same confidence the believers had then and that we have today. Paul also declares that the Lord is the Spirit, one of the members of the Trinity, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the death, the same Spirit present in creation in Genesis 1, is the same Spirit that removes the veil of those who put their faith in Christ, transforming them into a new creation. He's going to expand, I believe, this concept and implications of being a new creation in chapter 5. We're going to see that in a few weeks, but specifically 5.17 says that um, he goes to compare the old and the new in connection with both covenants. He says that if anyone is in Christ, a new creation takes place. The old is eradicated by the new work that the Spirit brings about in the believer's life. So those who put their faith and hope in Christ will be united with Christ participating in his death and his resurrection. They will experience the freedom to be transformed into Christ's image as part of God's plan to heal and restore all creation. Because the entire creation has been unwillingly submitted to the futility of sin. We read that in Romans. But in Christ is being freed and restored to the beauty, the glory, and perfection he had in the beginning. Those are good news. Again, all this is possible to the work of the Spirit that gives a new heart to those who believe. That is what God promised in the Old Testament to Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Not only a new heart will be given, but a new spirit as a sign of the fulfillment of that promise. A heart of flesh and not of stone so that we can serve and obey and enjoy God. The way Moses experienced the presence and the glory of the Lord is now a reality for any believer. Anyone who turns to Christ through the work of the ministry of the Spirit will have the freedom to contemplate the glory of the Lord while the inner self is renewed every day before his presence. Now, this is not a freedom in which we do whatever we want, but instead it gives an assurance to express ourselves without having to hide or keep up with an external appearance or reputation in which we feel we must defend or commend ourselves before others. That is always a temptation. This is the kind of freedom that no matter what we've done or who we were, we know that we always are going to be loved accepted and approved by the Lord himself and that he's doing one good work in us. We now can see God's glory through faith in Christ and the power of the Spirit and not behind the veil. We have access to a life full of love and joy because we know that the Spirit of the living God dwells in us. And because of this hope and freedom we're given, we can declare with confidence that our past has no power over us, that our past doesn't define us, that our mistakes and broken relationships don't define us that our sickness doesn't define us, that the words spoken to us don't define us, that the culture doesn't define us, that addictions don't define us, that fear doesn't define us. We are his people, and he is the one who defines us from beginning to the end. The one who defines us is Christ Jesus, 
who came to set the captives free, who came to inaugurate a new kingdom, the one who defines our identity is Jesus. We are his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we might declare the praises of him who calls us out of the darkness into the marvelous light. And finally, Paul explain, explains in the last verses that, in the last verse that we all in Christ have access not only to receive this kind of hope, but to display it and be in transforming the process. All who are in Christ not only are called from the all end to the new, and that's it. He explains that we're not only safe, we're not only rescued, but with an unveiled mind and heart, we have the confidence that we'll be transformed and renewed into Christ's likeness. As we contemplate and are exposed to that glory, we'll also portray him just like Moses did. A journey of glorious transformation takes place, a journey to know God and to experience his presence permanently. But this journey is not about you and me individually in our rooms with God. It's about us together from one moment of glory to another, displaying on each other the beauty of his glory. We all possess are being transformed as we contemplate the Lord's glory. And contemplation speaks of intimacy and consistency and renewal Someone who's pursuing, pressing, longing, abiding, and trusting. Someone whose life is transformed by that journey despite the failures, the doubts, the fears, the brokenness. Someone that goes on to tell others about this hope. This renewal is not about an overnight process again. <laughs> it's a journey in which Christ is being crafted in us until one day we get to see him and we get to be like him. We're being transformed into his image. Salvation and restoration are not a one-time event, but a journey of glorious transformation in which we confess Jesus not only as Savior, but as Lord. This is a journey about faith and obedience in which we're giving back what was stolen by sin, and that is our humanity. And we get to bear his perfect image and to be our true selves. The question about faith here, however, <laughs> is not whether we should believe the gospel. The question is, if we believe the God revealed in the gospel message as enough. Salvation in the love of the believers should not be seen as a one-time event and instead as a turning point in which our lives are not only rescued but transformed on a journey that reminds us that we were wonderfully made and crafted by God himself so that we get to display his glory. Also, as we contemplate his glory, we're crafted into the image of Christ, resembling his spiritual and moral character, which causes people to experience life and hope instead of death and desolation. So let me ask you this. Who has the boldness to preach this gospel this week? Who has the boldness to go and tell others how great Christ is? I want to close with a quote of fun that I believe is relevant for us this morning. And this person said that only the grace of God is kind enough and the power of God is strong enough to achieve this transformation in our broken and darkened life. Jesus Christ is our living hope. I once knew a boy just like the one story I shared with you, a boy whose life seems like a mountain he could not climb. He was definitely in a desolated place, literally with no hope, fully aware of the cruel and raw realities happening around him. And he was desperately longing for hope. One day, God sent someone with a courageous message of hope to meet his boy. And this nine-year-old heard the news that will change his life forever just because 
Someone made his life available to be used. And in desperation, this boy, not having anything to lose, he turned to heaven in his darkest hour in hair of the hope of Jesus. And like a thunder in the storm, the sound of the presence, love, and kindness of Christ burst into his life. And tore through the shadows of his soul, starting a new work in him and rewriting the story of his life. That Jesus became this boy's living hope and a new creation took place. Just as the Spirit was creating and calling light and life into existence in the darkness of the void, God began something new in each one of us when we heard and believed the gospel. Like Pastor Ed reminded us last week that God started a marvelous work that will last forever. One day, one day, and I'm looking forward to this day, he will look straight at us, all of us, and probably he's going to call everyone um, to hear what he has to say. As we contemplate his face and his glory, we will hear him say to us, look what I've done. And oh, he's going to smile. He's going to say it is good, very good. He won't be done with you until he can see and say that what he did is very, very good and complete. You will be his masterpiece. You are his masterpiece in progress. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence among us this morning. Thank you for reminding us that our hope is secured and permanent. Thank you, Lord, that what we receive is a, was an act of grace from you through our Lord Jesus Christ in the cross. Thank you that you invited us to live abundantly before you and your presence without wearing veils. So I pray that as we go about this week, Lord, that we'll make ourselves available to tell others about the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that you're calling your church today to be relevant, <laughs> to be bold, to be courageous. And we want to be that people, Lord. So do with us according to your will. We want to trust you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.